Hello Life Changes Church, welcome to our YouTube channel. We have got an amazing word prepared for you, so why don't you take out your notebook and your pen as we get ready to listen to what God has for us. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here today. Um, my name is Gabe Phillips, as Mark mentioned, married to a beautiful lady called Fiona, and we've got two little kitties, Olivia and Benji, who's six and four, and I failed to mention in any of the earlier services, I am now 35, people. I had my birthday on Friday, so that's very good. So... If you uh, brought your gifts, I'll have my boot open in the parking lot later. Wonderful. Good, good, good. But I want to start this, this conversation in this moment by taking us to September 1938. It's one year out from the start of World War II, and the world are on tenterhooks. They're nervous. They, they are fearful of this shadowy figure called Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer and the Third Reich. And uh, Neville Chamberlain, the pri British Prime Minister at the time, goes to have this face-to-face, -face, this tete-a-tete -tete with, with Adolf Hitler, and this moment, and, and what is going to happen from the, this, this, this conversation. And Chamberlain comes back, and he has this famous, or shows that infamous speech, where he says, peace for our time, everyone can relax, peace for our time, Hitler's promised me that he's not going to take another square inch of land in Europe. At the same moment, Winston Churchill retaliates, and his voice starts to grow a little bit louder, because he says, controversially at the time, but actually more correctly as hist historical uh, looks back, he says, you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. I say that as a proviso because I want to declare that we are at war. And the war is for who is Lord. It's just playing out on the field of sexuality. But it's who is Lord in our life. And uh, we're at war, and as we have been saying throughout the series, we're not fighting to defend the Bible, trying, fighting to defend the church or uh, some sort of sexual ethic. We are fearlessly and courageously declaring the goodness of God. That is what we're wanting to do in the series. And uh, I wanted to remind us that there are two preachers, just like in that, in that day and age of World War II, Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill, who are two characters at play for this narrative. But I want to declare that actually there have always been two preachers. There always has been, always will be two preachers. In the complexity of the world that we live in, it's rather quite simple. There's two preachers. First one is found in Genesis 1, named God, who created all things and declared, It is good. And then on page 2, there's Genesis chapter 3, the second preacher, Satan, who came and challenged the very words of God by saying, did God really say? And that's the narrative. That's the story that's at play then, still today, now. John chapter 10 tells us that the enemy, the second preacher, came to kill, steal, and destroy. But the first preacher, Jesus, he came that we may have life and life to the full. And I want to ask us the question, which preacher are you listening to? Because the voice you listen to will determine the future you walk into. The voice you listen to will determine the future you walk into. So with that as a proviso, today we are preaching on LGBTQIA plus and the gospel. And as I've told people this week, uh, as I got ready to preach, I said, this is what I'm preaching on. The response every time I've said that has been, ooh, that's controversial. And it's controversial for a number of reasons, but I think two in particular. Number one, it's a, this has become a personal issue. And what I mean by that, it's no longer an issue out there for somebody else or uh, someone on the great horizon. I think I know someone, seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, who might struggle in that area. No, this is now something that's in our lives. It's our uncles, it's our aunts, it's our family members, it's our kids. This is our day and age. It's personal. It's faces. It's people we love. But also, it's a political issue. 
It's agendas at play. It's legislations at play. It's the fact that we started to preach this, and almost unbeknownst to us, that we started to preach this, and right on the heels of that, we have Sexpo billboards going up, advertising that May is the start of Sexpo in Cape Town. And straight hot on his heels in June, it's Pride Month. Realize that this is not a conversation that's just happening in a vacuum. But actually, there's gender confusion. There's letters being added seemingly every second day. And the only unforgivable sin is to be intolerant. You can do whatever you want, just don't be intolerant. But this is the reality. It feels like we're under assault from an unrelenting tide where this is the conversation that's at play and it just feels like it's barraging our hearts again and again. But I want to remind us that the scriptures give us this warning again and again and it's four simple words. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And it's, and it's easy for us to be deceived at this time. Deceived by an agenda uh, by, from the second preacher who's preaching a, a, a different way, a different uh, source of life and saying, did God really say? And maybe tweaking that and, and going with the culture and just saying, this is where it is. Love is love. Let them, let people be as they will be. Que sera, sera, whatever you do, be, will be. It's like, I just, I, you know, I want to just give in to the tide. Or there's the other deception, which I think is equally or even more so insidious, is the deception that my sin is not as bad as their sin. And bigotry and prejudice can get well up in our hearts, and we'll find the voices that will affirm our way and encourage us, and we'll get into a vacuum there. But we are here saying that the only way to not be deceived on either side of the spectrum is to get a firm foundation of biblical conviction, and secondly, biblical compassion on this issue. And we have to understand that together. So I want to give you a disclaimer. I am not a social, political, or psychological commentator. I'm a pastor, and uh, my job and our job is to preach the gospel and to equip the church, and I pray that we'll be able to do that together this morning. So I want to remind us that we are preaching Jesus, and I, I, you'll see that as we navigate this that I'm not preaching LGBTQIA+, I'm preaching Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. Anything, anything else, it will be less of, of an aim, and I'll be doing the, the pulpit that God has given us, an injustice if you don't leave here seeing Jesus more clearly. I want you to see Jesus because what we believe about God determines what we believe about ourselves. Let me say it one more time. What we believe about God determines what we believe about ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I pray a simple prayer for us as a community this morning. I pray open the eyes of our heart that we may see you. I don't want to see my agenda. I don't want to see my preference, my prejudice, or even my pride. I don't want to see my sin. I want to see you. Open the eyes of our heart that we may see you, that we may know you, that we may walk in your ways. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to give us today four headlines of who God reveals himself as to us as humanity as we navigate our way through this conversation. Number one, he reveals himself as a creator. In, in, the, in this world of confusion, it's really helpful to go back to the beginning, page one to be exact. And that's what we're doing the whole series, original design. And we find in page one that God introduces himself as a creator. Or if I can say it more accurately, he introduces himself as the creator. Not one of many, not a, a, a group discussion, no, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He introduced himself as the creator, the original desire, designer, Everything was made from him, everything was made by him, everything was made for him, 
and this reality of creation, the complex creation that exploded to life, the, the, the complex creation of atoms and microbiology and, and mountains and seas and, and insects and the complexity of life and the universes and galaxies and all the things that my high school biology is failing at me right now to describe to you. But the complexity of creation at large reaches the zenith, its pinnacle, when God creates the highest point of his creation. And no, it's not the Apple iPhone 12. And no, it's not AI technology. No, God said, I am making mankind. And this is how he did it. In Genesis 1 verse 27 to 28, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Four things we pick up from this passage is number one, we were created in his image. We are created in his likeness. It's called the Imago Day. The psalmist waxes lyrical about this and says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Yeah. Made at the hands of a genius creator to reflect that genius creator. We were made in the image of God. Secondly, we have to understand that he created them. Let me put an emphasis. He created them. He made the decision. Yeah. I have had the privilege of being at the birth of both of our kids, 17th uh, of, um, sorry, can we get it right? My wife's not here to correct me. 16th of March, 2017, 27th of May, 2019, Olivia and Benji. And let me tell you, in those, those moments, those days, are, there's a deep imprint in my heart. I can recall them visually. To mind as those little lives came out of the womb, as those this, this perfect body, that perfect cry, that perfect red hair, just to top it all off. Oh, wow, wow. And those days were loud, they were emotional, they were wild, and that was just me. But let me tell you something that really struck a chord that day, something really hit me hard as I saw those two little lives. I realized in that moment that He created them. Let me tell you. I'm not that good at sex to make Olivia and Benjamin that perfectly. <laughs> Despite what you might have heard. Let me tell you guys. <laughs> Let me tell you. That day I realized he, the designer, the creator, that intricate one. This was not biology. This was not my, my incredible, oh, Fiona and I, great passion. Wow, look what we designed. No, there is a creator. And it's very evident when you see the perfection of those lives. He created them. Thirdly, we see that it says male and female, he created them. God's gender template is right there. Male and female. Yeah. Binary. Maybe you're sitting here and you go, oh, that's old-fashioned. Okay, come on, come on, we've, we've evolved. Well, let's slow it down a little bit because when we're talking about who he is in this narrative, his IQ is infinite. His age is eternal. His wisdom is beyond understanding. And when you realize the complexity and beauty of the, the poem, the prosaic nature of Genesis 1 and 2, is that God created the heavens and then the earth. He created the night and the day. He created the land and he created the seas. And likewise, he created male and female. This was his modus operandi. This wasn't just random trying to, oh, what do I do in this? No, this is, there's a method to God's workmanship. And so much so in Genesis 2, when it talks about Eve and her creation, it says he made Eve woman uh, as a suitable helper for Adam. He was not saying suitable helper, someone who can do the laundry and help with the shopping. No, don't worry, woman, be free. 
suitable helper is this beautiful word that means it is according to the opposite of them, or better still, an exact appropriate match. As the heavens and the earth, so is the male and female dynamic. They play together in this reality. And fourthly and finally, we realize in this, this conversation, Genesis 1, we were made with a purpose. The male and female dynamic is not an end in itself. We are made with a purpose. That purpose is found in verse 28, which says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, be fruitful and multiply. The Bible, in essence, is saying this, and this is the Gabe Phillips translation, GBT, right there, says, have sex, have babies, teach them to know that they know the Creator and that they can make the Creator known. That's the mission and mandate. You've heard it here at church, you can tell your spouse when you get home, the preacher said, have sex and make babies. Let's go, that's what God said. And you, it is right, you would be true. But here's the thing, the enemy has distorted this narrative, this order, by turning it upside down his head, and the enemy has made us an insecure people who have forgotten our purpose, who've confused about our identity, and we're questioning our creator. And you see, it leads us to be a people who are in the shifting tides of this conversation. We go in a world where everything seems up to gra for grabs, and everything's changing, and we don't know what, what is the next thing in this journey. There's only one thing that's unchanging, and it's the eternal word of God. Not my opinions, not where does the church stand, where, where, no, it's what, where the word of God falls on these issues and elements. And we end up doing stuff like, and I know it, I'm guilty as charged, where we, it feels like we are metaphorically got scissors and we cut out all the pages of the Bible that we don't like. We'll sit in church and when that preacher gets up and he's preaching against your hobby horse that you, you're like, you're like yeah, I'm also against that, you're amening, you're like got the handkerchief out, you're like, amen, preacher. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm like, yes, that is good. You get him, preacher. That's good. And then as soon as the preacher turns and pivots and hits something maybe that's a little bit too close for home and you, you're like, oh, hashtag church hurts. I'm leaving. <laughs> and maybe it's not as overt and simple as that, but it's in our hearts. It's in my heart. We do that. We always uh, bait and switch and we're cutting out the pay. That thing, I don't know, you know, tone that down. That, when actually we just got to actually be a people say, are we a people of the word or not? And this is one chapter that the the world would love to cut out of the Bible. And actually, there have been legislation to have this part of the Bible not re be removed. And actually, as a hate speech to be spoken from the pulpit. And this is not some backwater scripture tucked in the nook and cranny of the Old Testament. No, this is in Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says this. In chapter 1, verse 20. He says, ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. He's pointing back to the created order. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yet, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God created them to their, God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the woman turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, 
burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Verse 28 goes on saying, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. We have to understand the context of the book of Romans as we read it. Romans chapter 1, and this is deep, you might want to write this down. It's followed by Romans chapter 2. It's really good. But Romans chapter 1, Paul is speaking and to the, the idolatrous nat nature of the Gentile world and the, the, the fact that the created order has gone awry and they've swapped the creator for creation and are give, saying we want to be God and, and, give, and this is the fruit of it. But just hold on because chapter 2, I can imagine the Jewish audience are listening to this and going, get him, Paul. You get those Gentiles. Amen. Then chapter 2, Paul goes, and you guys and turns the conversation over to the Jewish believers and starts to speak into their heart of how they've fallen short. And then he makes the pinnacle of the argument in the book of Romans is to say, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah. This is not an us and them conversation, but it's, an under, it's a clarity conversation. And we find that Genesis chapter one, we told that God created the creation and, and out of that, that good creation flowed good relationships and his good original design for the male-female dynamic. And in Romans chapter 1, we hear the voice of the second preacher that has got in the ear of humanity, and they've allowed that the good design, and they've swapped it around, and they've said, we'll worship creation rather than the creator. We'll decide. Did God really say we'll forge our own identity? And the fruit of that is distorted and broken relational and identity dynamics. This is the reality. There's two preachers, always has been, always will be. But when we see these scriptures, we read them, we realize that spirituality and sexuality are connected. Yeah. That, a way, that our sexuality has been designed as a way for us to know God. But the second preacher will have us believe it's also a way for us to try and be God. I will define. I'll walk it out. And maybe you, you're here today and you're like, okay, help me in this journey. Well, let me, let's go straight to Jesus himself. And Jesus in the book of Matthew was asked questions about relational nature. In, in, in case in point, one about divorce, about how relationships, when they're dysfunctional and they're not working as God intended, what do we do? And this is Jesus' reply in Matthew 19, verse 4 to 6. Jesus said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus, when questioned about relational dysfunction and sexual dysfunction, Jesus himself points back to the beginning. He doesn't point to the opinions of the day. He doesn't point to what people are saying. What, what are people saying? What, do you, what is the pastor? No, he says, no, I want to take us back. Did, have you not read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And for this reason, they'll be, you leave their mother and father, be united, become one flesh. And in a sense, we have to realize that very explicitly, God's sexual template, this is God's sexual template, that sexuality should be expressed 
our sexual nature, the sexual act should be expressed only in one place, the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. Any other expression of sexuality outside of that is sin. That's what the, that's Jesus. Jesus says that this is the design. Sex is to be expressed in marriage between a male and a female. This is, applies to whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. This is a, the reality that actually if we are indulging our sexuality through pornography or through adulterous relationship or same-sex relationships, it is sin outside of that con- covenant. In marriage, between a man and a woman. That's what Jesus is very explicit about. And maybe you would hear this and the the second preacher will say, love is love. I say, respectively, no. Scripture says God is love. And he's the creator, he's the designer, and I think the one who embodies love and designed it has the right to define it. There are two preachers, and the voice you listen to will determine the future you walk into. He reveals himself as the creator. Secondly, he reveals himself to us as a father. The cry of the day when Jesus came was this. The disciples again and again said, show us the father. Show us the father. And Jesus came not to show us our true selves. He didn't come to say, let me show you how, how wonderful you are. No, he came explicitly to show us the father. And it was an exclusive claim and quite an offensive claim. Where Jesus says, no man comes to the father except through me. Jesus is saying, this is the way. And this is incredible because this is actually what got him killed. He, he died on the cross because of this claim, because he was calling on the name of God as Father, saying you've known him as creator, but you also have, you haven't understood him as Father as well. These go hand in hand. You have to see this dynamic. And this is, for us, huge, because what we believe about God determines what we believe about ourselves. And fathers do two things if they're operating well. They love and they protect, amongst many others, but overtly a love and protect. And I've, as I've said explicitly, I've got two uh, kids, Olivia and Benji, and we've got this amazing cul-de-sac that goes around uh, our, our road. And as we turn right, it's a gradual slope, and we get the bikes out, we get the scooters, and it's a, it's a cool little climb in the, in the early evening. And then we go all the way around, and that hill suddenly becomes very steep, and at the top, you can see all over Bloberg underneath, b- b- underneath you. And this hill is a steep de- decline. And at that moment, Olivia hops off his little bike, and she starts to pedal it slowly, very cautiously down the hill. Oh, what a wonderful older sibling. Benji, on the other hand, he just sees this hill as an invitation to let loose. He's like, this is my time. Let's go. Let's go. And, and, I, and I can see as a father, I can see just, I'm, I'm not a prophet, but I can see. I can see broken bones. I can see roasties and grazers. I can see that car coming around the bend and taking my little boy out. And, and I say to Benji, Benji, no, boy, no. You're going to get off. You're going to walk your bike down this hill. You cannot do it, navigate. Your little feet cannot touch the pedals. This is freewheeling. And he's like, Dad, don't say no. Dad, let me fly. I'm a peacock. Dad, let me fly. I was born to fly. But, but I'm like, no, boy. And at that moment, he is infuriated because at that moment, I'm a father that is against his joy. I'm a father that is so, so controlling and holding back from this joy that's right. You can touch it. You can taste it. It's there. Freedom. But actually, I'm a good father that is saying no, not because I'm against his joy, but I'm actually for his ultimate joy. And this is what we rail against. And in our, all our hearts, we hate the fact that there's potentially some limitations on our lives. How dare God put some limitations? We've been sold this light. You can be anything you want to be. We've said it for 20 years to our kids, and now we're wondering why this is the dynamic we got to. But this is the reality. God says, no, in the beginning, God said, this far and no further to the seas. 
this far, no further. Tonight, you cannot encroach on day. This far, no further to the seasons. And he said it to the male-female dynamic. He said that to our sexual expression, this far and no further. And those limits aren't because he's angry and against our joy. It's because he's a father who's for our joy and for our freedom that he says no. And we, when we lose that dynamic, we lose the reality of who God has called himself to be because what God determined as good, the enemy wants to pervert. The scriptures say, oh, my boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And it's the Father's prerogative to name us, to call us. It's the, the world wants to name us by our suffering. The, name, the world wants to name us by our struggle. Satan wants to call you by your sin, but God wants to call you by your name. God wants to call you by your future. God wants to call you by where you're headed, not where you've been. And this plays out explicitly in Genesis 37 where we see Rachel giving birth to her child, her last born, and she's in such anguish and such painful that actually this childbirth leads her to die. But with her last breath, as she gives birth to this child, she names him ben Nai, which means son of my suffering. But as that baby is birthed, the father, Jacob, steps into the story and says, no, I'm not going to allow that child's future to be determined by this moment, by this suffering, by this struggle. I'm going to name him Benjamin which means son of authority. And fathers don't call us by our suffering. He calls us by where we're called to go. And this is our heavenly father, what he does. And I want to remind my heart, your heart, that you and I are not our sin. We are not how we feel. We are who he says we are. In a world of ever-changing standards and ideas, we have to stand on the eternal word of God and what he has spoken about us. Yeah. Philippians 1 verse 10 is a pastoral and fatherly text where the Apostle Paul is echoing the heart of God when he prays for us. It says this, Philippians 1 verse 10 says, I pray that you would be able to discern what is best. I pray that you'll be able to know what is best. And that's what a father does. Your friends will say, what is, uh, lead you in the conversation, what's okay? What's allowed? What will get you happiness now? What will, what will make sure that you can so, uh, you reconcile these feelings and emotions inside of you now? But a father says, I want you to be able to know what's best. When you're staying on top of that incline and you think this is, that, this is all I see, the, the, the potential freedom and joy in this moment, but there's a father saying no because he's able to scope a little bit further and says, I know what is best. We have to be, have a revelation of the father and the enemy is hell-bent to destroy us seeing the father. That's why all the way through media, the last 80s and 90s, the media agenda was to, to paint the father in the home as a bumbling idiot where the pinnacle of fatherhood was Homer Simpson, a, a drunk, somebody who was never a present, somebody who was abusive to their family, and that was comedic genius, to, but to, to slowly eradicate the confidence in the fathers, one show after the other, one advertising campaign after the other, where the fathers were marginalized, and now we stand here going, we're all the fathers. You did a good job about it. And he, but the enemy does that, not because he, he's against oh, some nuclear family dynamic. No, he, higher than that, he doesn't want us to see God as the father. Because what we believe about God will determine what we believe about ourselves. And the next on this hit list is the idea of marriage. If he can distort marriage, he can distort not just how your, your reality and your relational, uh, how it plays out. He wants to distort how we see Jesus and his love for the bride, the church. Because marriage is, an, is a shadow and copy of the ultimate marriage of Jesus, the bridegroom, coming back for his church, the bride. So if he can distort that reality and say, did God really say the second preacher can come and eradicate the confidence we have in the first preacher's reality. 
So what we believe about God will determine what we believe about ourselves. Firstly, he reveals himself as a creator. Secondly, as, a, as our father. And thirdly, as a savior. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 to 10. Paul goes on and says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? And hear those words again. Don't be deceived. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. You know the world is shouting, second preacher, equality. I love the fact that we serve a God of equality. He's an equal offending God. In that scripture, he literally starts to list out all those people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in a sense, he's saying this, like it's a divine Oprah show moment. You get to repent and you get to repent. Everyone look under your seats right now. You'll get a handful of repentance. That's what you get from God. It's a call to repentance. And the first, second preacher is a preaching, a call to tolerance. Where Jesus is still preaching a call not to tolerance, but to repentance. And if your first thought in this conversation is, my sin is not as bad as theirs, don't be deceived. I think you're worse off than you first might think. But I love how that scripture doesn't end there. Again, verse 10 follows on and goes into verse 11. It says, these are those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But verse 11 says, some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now, before we think that Paul is speaking to some elite group of Christians who've like really waxed everything. And like, no, oh, we really, we've conquered all our sins and struggles. Paul is preaching to the church called the church at Corinth. The Corinthian church would have made the Kardashians blush. Honestly, keeping up with the Corinthians would have been a hit show because these guys knew how to indulge in sin. And Paul, it's not that they have now, they've overcome all this and Paul is pastorally stepping in there saying, some of you once were, you were some of these things, but you're actually making, you've made a decision. There's been a savior's intersecting story who's changing your narrative. Who's changing your narrative. And here is the reality. I'm not a psychologist. I can't weigh in at that level. So I don't know if some people are just maybe born that way. But what I do know with conviction is that we are all called and called to be born again a different way. You once were, but you now become. And, and if I can be as bold, that actually I say this reality is that God can change you. And what I'm saying in that is I, I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying what in the 80s and 90s as churches abuse us and pray the gay away and all these abusive and harmful and hurtful and uncaring realities. I'm saying not the church, not a religion, God can change you. That's at the very centerpiece of the gospel. He died and he rose again to take sinners and make them holy and righteous. That's what our gospel is, that God who can change us. That's the miracle. He can take porn addicts and make them holy and righteous. He can make angry and violent men and make them peace-loving and joyful. He can do that with anybody. He's done it again and again. We told the testimony of the amazing Kath McGaw, whose narrative, if you haven't heard it, in short, go listen to the interview. But the, in short, was married to the amazing Lionel McGaw. Then because of sin in both the stories, she went on a journey of same-sex attraction and giving vent to that uh, and, and went astray until her story intersected the Savior, who said, I still haven't given up, and I still can change you. Such were some of you. Such were you. And called her back to what she was designed, not what her feelings said, not what the world said, but what the Creator and her Father said about her. It's the Father's prerogative to name. 
She sits here today married to a husband with a family intact. Yes, with navigating the consequences, but actually going, I have a future. I'm not named by my struggle. I'm named by my future. This is it. Paul tells us the antidote is not some YouTube talk. Have you seen this talk? It's not through some preaching rhetoric. It's through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the only hope we have. And let me make it clear. The apostle Paul says, in that list, he says, those who practice homosexuality. Paul is being clear that's the practicing of homosexuality that is the sin. Because the scriptures say, our desires give birth to sin. The desires aren't sin, but the desires unrestrained give birth to sin. That's true for all of us. We all have desires and inclination for sin. All have fallen short. We all have different moments where we have that opportunity. Will I give birth, uh, give uh, outlet to my feelings and what I'm desiring, or will I say, no, I'm going to choose what you have spoken? Because the voice you listen to will determine the future you walk into. And there's two voices fighting over those desires, fighting over those feelings. Will you give vent to them or you'll lay them down? Let me remind us that our identity, the world wants to say your identity is in what's in your pants, your identity is defined by who's in your bed. But I want to say for us, our identity is who's on the throne. You are not gay. You are not bi. You are not straight. You're not pansexual. You're not queer. You're not transgender. You are a Christian. If you follow Jesus, your identity is him. And he gets to define it, and that gets to be your story. Because the scripture tells us you were cleansed. That means there is no sin that you cannot be washed clean of. The scripture says you were made holy. You were made holy. But what I want to make note of there doesn't say it says you're cleansed you're made holy you're made righteous it doesn't say and you were made happy because let me just say we've bowed our knee to this new god of you be happy bow your knee everyone just you do what makes you feel good because your happiness is the prerogative no 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 the bible says no i want to i want to make you holy holiness will lead to joy because holiness says blessed are the holy they will see god i don't want to see me and my sinful nature put on more display Loud and proud as a sinner. I want to see him. I'm convinced of my sin, but I want to be more and more convinced of him. You were made holy. You were made righteous. And when it says you were made righteous, it doesn't mean you don't struggle. It just means you're not overcome by the struggle. You were made righteous. This is the good news of the gospel. And I want to remind us that marriage isn't the ultimate goal. Being in a heterosexual marriage isn't the aim. Marriage between a male and a woman, is not the fruit of the Spirit. It's God's design, but the aim is Christ-likeness. We're not trying to sell you a new sexual ethic. We're trying to sell you Christ-likeness. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this is the reality. He's a wonderful Savior. I ask you, will you surrender your desires to Him? He reveals Himself as a Creator, as a Father, as a Savior. And lastly, for this morning, He reveals Himself as an Empowerer. I remember growing up in Zimbabwe, playing cricket with my older brothers, and as the one, the tennis ball went over the fence, my job as the youngest brother was to climb the rickety fence, navigate my way into the neighbor's yard to go fetch that tennis ball, but what made it more exciting and exhilarating or terrifying was the presence of Sheba, the resident Rottweiler, nicknamed Whispering Death next door. <laughs> and as I crept across that, sent on this mission, this task, of inevitable death, as I went across there and could get the tennis ball in silence, and as I would pick it up and start to make my way back cautiously to the fence, my brothers and their older brothers, sadistic way, would start to hit the fence and say, seek him, Sheba, seek him. And that day, 
I proved that white men can jump. <laughs> I got over that fence very quickly. But I think we have this idea that often it feels like God has sent us into this battlefield, this, this war zone. This is war where it feels like we are bombarded left and right. We're bombarded internally by our own sinful desires, our own hearts, our own confusion, by a world agenda, political agenda, personal agenda. And we're trying to navigate this. And how are we going to win this war with our own, our own frustration, our own confusion? And it feels like we're just out there by us like, good luck. But that's, I won't tell you the rub of it. God didn't say good, good night and good luck. He climbed over the fence with us and he comes with us. He is the empower. I tell you, he knows every temptation. He knows every struggle. He knows every pain. He knows every trial. And I say to you today, if you are struggling in this area, you're struggling in this area, he has compassion for you. And the scripture tells us he has given you everything you need for life and godliness. You're not a punching bag for the enemy. You're a son and a daughter of the living God. If you're confused, and you're trying to work out, and who am I, and what am I, and where am I going, and the narrative of the world, and my friends, and he has compassion for you, and he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. If you're a parent, and you are terrified, saying, what do I say, how do I lead, uh, what, what is my agenda, how do I do this in the story, how do I navigate my kid's future in this world that seems to have been gone crazy, but I don't know what to say, I don't know how to talk to them. He has compassion on you. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And if you're feeling guilty, shame-ridden, you've done things, and you're feeling like, I have so gone down the road that I, I feel I'm way too far gone, I tell you today, he has compassion for you. And he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. I know this because of Jesus Christ. When he was on this earth, he preached this incredible sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The pinnacle of all sermons. And as he's preaching this new way to view God, to see the kingdom. Blessed are the pure, for they will see God. He even speaks about the overflow of that as a new sexual ethic. And he says, if your sin causes, your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If you read that at face value, you're going, that's putting any right-wing, fundamentalist, fire-breathing preacher to shame. You're like, whoa, that's this guy, whoa. Trigger warning. Give me a trigger warning before you say that, Jesus. It's hectic. But this Jesus, who did not water down his biblical conviction of what God had called us to, is the same Jesus who steps off that mountain and goes and encounters straight on the back of that a leper and touches him. He meets a woman who's got an issue of blood who touches him. And he meets a man, a wee little man named Zacchaeus in a tree. And says, Zacchaeus, you've been named one thing. You've been named by your past. You've been named by your sin. But I want to tell you, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree because salvation has come to your house today. And it seems that this Jesus, who is full with biblical conviction, full of truth, and this Jesus who is filled with biblical compassion, that sinners love to be around. Sinners love to hang out with Jesus, even though this would seem to be the, the truth that he preached. Jesus, full of grace and truth, was modeling for us as a community that this is what it looks like to be able to stand and not be deceived. A people full of biblical conviction, a people full of biblical compassion. So I tell you today, we are called to stand unapologetically for truth. And it's going to be costly. Stand for truth in this story, in this, in this narrative now, to point to the creator, to point to the father, to point to the savior, to point to the empower is going to be costly. It'll cost us promotions. It'll cost you jobs. It'll cost you friendships. It'll cost you the opinion of man. But we also have been called to stand unapologetically with grace. And I think that journey might be even more costly. 
because it means we'll have to lay our prejudice down. We'll have to repent of our own sin. Because the word, the eternal word of God, that created from out of it all the creation and the, the universe and galaxies came forth from the eternal, unchanging word of God, became flesh and walked amongst us, full of grace and full of truth. This is who we are called to be as a church. So I want to remind us and declare unapologetically that we don't carry the flag of pride. Neither do we carry the flag of our prejudice. We carry the cross of Jesus Christ, which bids us come and die so that you may live. I think it is time for the church to come out, not, not out of the closet, but out of compromise. And come, come out, church, out of compromise. Stand in conviction and stand and walk in compassion. Because this is why I have conviction. Not because of our great sexual ethic, but because of this one truth. I am unashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm unashamed not of my political leaning. I'm not ashamed, unashamed because of, of where I stand on this issue. I'm not unashamed because of my track record or because of my heterosexuality. I'm unashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ because that is the power of God. Not Jordan Peterson's rhetoric. Not Elliot Page's stand on the left. No, the power of God is the good news of Jesus. And it is the good news, the power of God for salvation for everyone. For everyone. For heterosexuals, for homosexuals, for bisexuals, for pansexuals, for queer, for transgender, for everyone. For the adulterer, for the, for the, for the angry man, for the broken, for the idolater, for the, the, the divorcee. This is the good news for everyone who believes. Because what you believe about God will determine what you believe about yourself. Can we stand to our feet as we land? I speak in this room. If I can be as bold as a pastor in this church and in this city to speak to the LGBTQIA plus community. I have good news. You have a creator and you've been fearfully and wonderfully made. He is a father who loves you, fights for you, and has a future for you. You have a savior who's inviting you, saying, I can redeem you and I can restore you. And he's an empowerer who wants to walk every moment with you. I declare strongly, I cannot join you in tolerance I cannot join you and celebrate. But I can join you. And I must join you. And we can and we must join them in repentance. Because this is the call of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now. I ask you for your voice of conviction and compassion to roar over us as a people. And for the voice of the enemy to be silenced in our lives. I declare you came to give life and life to the full. I declare the life and the fullness of life of Jesus Christ into every single heart here. Hearts maybe that have betrayed their biblical conviction and been pulled along by the tide of this world. I pray the life of Jesus to intersect that story. Maybe people here who have betrayed biblical compassion and stood on their hobby horse and stood on the corner throwing bombs and, 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 and storing up hatred and discord in their hearts. I pray right now, Father God, we repent and we choose your way. And I pray your life Jesus into our hearts and I thank you Father God that we get to repent of our sin we get to admit of our desperate need for grace all of us 
You're standing on level ground at the foot of the cross. I thank you right now. We receive, we repent and we receive your grace. And I thank you, Father God, that you are here to declare so were some of you. But you have been washed clean. You've been made holy. You've been made righteous. Now I call you to stand. Biblical conviction. Biblical compassion. This is the way of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What an amazing, amazing word. If you would like to find out about what's happening in the life of the church, why don't you follow us on our social media, Instagram or Facebook, or you can go into our website, lifechanges.org.za. Thank you so much for watching that video. Be blessed.